Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls. Where despite our economic expansion, we would never buy a McMansion. That's right. We're making so much money on Patreon, <laughs> we might be able to buy a McMansion. But today we're talking about horribly designed homes all across America. And uh, you might live in a neighborhood and you might look out your window and say, damn, that house across the street is trolling. It ugly. It ugly. It's big and ugly. But first, we got to talk about some stuff you've been sending our way. Yes, troll mail at don't email the trolls at gmail.com. We got one from Micah, and this one's on the single troll episode. Great episode, guys. Is there a plan to do an episode interviewing single men now? Because we had... uh, Big girls on for that episode. As a single, uh, as a single thirty-year-old, I would say that the main change I would like to see from women is to stop pretending we can read their minds. Be upfront about whether or not you're interested. Of course, I say this rather hypocritically. I'm not likely to tell women when I'm interested because I believe they are always better off with someone else, and I'd rather not hold them back. That is very sad. Quite personally, <laughs> I've given up on the internet dating scene. And never had a Tinder. And so, yeah, I forwarded Micah to our Patreon, where we do talk to Nate's friend, Tyler, about being single for 10 years in an exclusive Patreon interview. And that's just for our patrons to listen to. We realized we had way too much content for one podcast episode. And so we got the perspective of Tyler, a single man in this modern dating scene. And that's up on our Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, Nate. Oh, yeah, we are... Trying to reward all you great, great people out there who uh, have been diving in. Tremendous people. Oh, tremendous. The greatest. <laughs> we have the greatest patrons. We do have the greatest. Ask Fantastic him. people. <laughs> I know them. They're the best. Okay, so Jordan Reiser, Sam Peace, Seth Gunnels. I think we've read some of these. We might have. But we're overlapping because they weren't on the other document. That's fine. Uh, Megan Sablakovich. Caitlin Dyke, Nick Reiner, Alex Weimer, Weim, Weimer. I did read his name wrong last time. I'm just seeing that now. My bad. Oh. Um, is it Weimeyer? Weimeyer? Alex Weimeyer or Weimeyer? Weimeyer? Sure. Oh, that's very nice. It's French. No, Noah Hardwick, Luke Shoemaker, Lee Phillips, Dylan Brightbill, Brant Rooney, Brian Blakenship, Tristan Lemon. Roger Vanderwalker, Rose Hansen. No, that's Ross Hansen. Ross. I'm uh, dyslexic. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I read fast, and I, and I tend to skip the words and try to keep going, try to keep the ums and ats, and I, I just butcher it. So thank you guys for joining the patron, Patreon, whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> if you go to the website, you'll see, though, there's over 130 people now supporting the show every month. And uh, Matt and I are delivering more and more content that's exclusive to just those people. So if you want to get in on that, you can go to patreon.com slash trolls, and at least a dollar a month gets you in, but uh, $5 a month makes you feel better. Yes. That's what I've been told. Exactly. And our next guest actually has a lot of patrons herself, and so... It's cool to see all these people out there supporting these independent creators doing whatever it is they want to do, and people are jumping on board and helping support them, um, whether it's a podcast or a video series or a blog. In this case, yeah. So our topic of the day is McMansions.
you and I are thinking a lot about housing. You're moving into a smaller RV. I've fixed up a couple houses over the last six years. And one thing I've realized is that at this point in our life, and I have so many friends who are like becoming realtors. And um, it, it seems like this is the part of life when everyone just gets obsessed about homes. There's all these shows like Flip or Flop and Fixer Upper. And it's just, it just seems like that's what everyone's into. Right. And some of you guys out there, you might be in your early 20s and you're like, I'm not going to buy a home for another 10 years. This is the most boring thing I could ever imagine listening to. But I think it's useful because what she's trying to describe, our guest, in, in all of her interviews and on her website is there's good design and there's bad design. Right. And there's good functional things that we should build as humans. And then there's terrible things we can build. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like a bigger topic. It's not just about housing, but, but I thought, man, this would be a great, a great episode because it kind of goes along with our minimalism episode. Sure. And our trolling and our trolling, uh, uh Ken M. you know, the Ken M style. Yeah, yeah, which is which is funny trolling, which I think is brilliant. And a lot of people, you might be out there trying to buy a house, and um, people are just kind of pressured to buy the biggest house possible, and maybe that's not what you should do. Right. And sometimes we don't get any education of like, okay, what kind of house should I buy? And anyone, it seems, who's purchased, based on the stats, someone who's purchased an older home that was designed well is actually appreciating more in value than the McMansions are. Right. So there's some benefit to having an eye for good design and knowing kind of what is good and what isn't good, which is something you and I argue a lot about. And we recently argued about that on our Troll Talk episode. I think our last one, right? Right. Yeah. We were arguing about what are, what are good podcasts and what are bad podcasts. Sure, sure. And people disagreed. <laughs> yeah, lots of people disagreed. But yeah. I'm still going to defend that S-Town was not a good podcast. So <laughs> I'm just going to go there. I'm just going to go there. On our podcast today is Kate Wagner, who runs the site McMansionHell.com. You might have heard of it. It's pretty funny. Uh, she chooses to, uh, to use the tone of humor to help educate people to make better choices in designing and or finding a home to live in. So, let's bring her on. I don't know where you lay your head or where you call your home. I don't know where you eat your meals or where you talk on the phone. Welcome, Kate Wagner, to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I went really quick into that welcome. Um, for our listeners, can you describe just a little bit about how you got into design and what made you want to start a website poking fun at bad architecture? I've been into design pretty much ever since I was a little kid. I was kind of a chronic HGTV junkie as a kid. Yeah. I got into design from kind of watching that. Uh, my mother is really into like home decorating and stuff like that. And I was always into architecture as even as a kid. I was kind of like one of those kids whose like face was like smashed against the window, like looking at houses. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got really into it in, in high school. Uh, especially like architectural history and theory. And I sort of started a serious study at that time. And I started writing around, I guess, the age of 16. Not as interesting or funny, but still <laughs> writing. <laughs> this summer, or last summer, I told my then boyfriend at the time, I was like, you know what? No one really does a really good ugly house blog. Like, I mean, ugly Belgian houses is a thing and I love them, but they only post every once in a while. And it's like a single, it's a single exterior picture. I was like, why is there no ugly house blog that just like does house roasts yeah 
like from the inside out. Yeah, and talk. No one talks about why these are like bad architecture or anything like that. And I was like, I'm just gonna do this. It's probably gonna be like stupid, and I'll quit like two weeks later. <laughs> and then it kind of took off. How many hour? How many uh, readers do you guys uh, average a month? So now? on the blog is on Tumblr, and I have like 38,000 Tumblr followers alone. And my Facebook page has like 7,000 likes and my Twitter has like 6,000 something followers. So uh, it gets pretty high engagement, right? I can't get the monthly stats really, but um, usually the, the posts, the posts do pretty well, but the, the Tumblr format really um, rewards posts that have been around sort of longer where they've had a lot of time to circulate. Right, so like the yeah. original McMansion Hell posts have like over a hundred thousand notes on so you, Tumblr. So you start this McMansionHell.com blog, and and what? How does it? How does it start taking off? Like, did you did you share it around, or did people just find it and find it hilarious? This random person just reblogged it. Who's like huge on Tumblr? It just kind of took off randomly, and I went to bed. It had fifteen notes, and I woke up, and it was like fifteen hundred. <laughs> oh wow! Then it was like five thousand, and then I suddenly had like five thousand followers, and it was just so weird. Wow! Um, yeah. How's that feel? They give, give you a little bit of anxiety. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, a lot of anxiety. I was like, "Whoa, this is weird." Yeah. Like, I still feel like it's weird. It's like kind. Of, it's normal now. At this point, it's been almost a year of McMansion Hell, and it's it's kind of normal. So how yeah. often do you post? Twice a week uh, on Wednesdays and Sundays. Wednesdays are like the funny posts that are just like, I hate this house and it's ugly and like there's arrows and jokes. <laughs> and uh, Sunday is more sort of informative. I've gone on and, and to, to talk about like certain architectural features like windows and doors at the very beginning. Did sort of like an A to Z of McMansion Hell and like the later summer. Now I'm doing architectural theory from the very beginning. So like Vitruvius and and uh alberti all the way i'm gonna go all the way through to like postmodernism and after so that'll probably stick around for a couple more months you ever thought about starting a podcast on that i think about it um i have a i kind of hate my speaking voice i gave a ted talk and that was weird (laughs) you get over it after a while but nate and i both hated ours too but we're we're fine with it now I, th- I think about it. Um, I probably would need to like get a new computer because mine's just like about to bite the dust at this point. But I think that the I mean, I was like a recording engineer in college. And so I sort of worked for a recording studio. So I and I have like the equipment to do it. I just right. yeah, I, I think about doing it. And it's like I spent all this time already right. writing. It's like maybe in the summer I, when I have more time and I'm not in right. school, then it could be like really beneficial. It is a little bit harder, though, because everything you're trying to showcase is visual stuff. So it's like, you know, it, it, sometimes like you can talk about something, but it's just easier to draw funny pictures on a picture that someone can see, you know? Yeah. I was thinking more along the lines of, like, philosophize this, where you go through the history, maybe in a maybe in a more comedic way, uh, the history of architecture. Because the, the philosophize this is a, is a podcast where he goes through the history of philosophy, and he, he talks about all yeah. the different philosophers on down the line. And it's really informative, yeah, but it's also super interesting and and fun you know he has all these anecdotal stories of you know plato and socrates and stuff and he he moves all the way through to modern philosophy and you know it's it's a huge podcast because people are like i'm getting an education here that i like wouldn't even pick up on in school because reading comprehension is far lower than listening comprehension so i I just thought that would be a a fun thing to do because he seemed interested in the history of it yeah i think that would be a really fun thing to do i kind of want to do it with somebody else too i I, like would like to have like some rapport back and forth or something like that 
Um, yeah, we talk about that a lot on this podcast about like one of the best things you can do when you're doing a creative project is don't do it alone because your fail rate is just so much higher because you have to hold yourself accountable versus if you have a partner like Matt and I, it's always like someone's down and like, I don't want to do the podcast. And it's like, well, come on, man. I got this idea. It's like, okay, okay. We'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely get a partner if you're going to do a podcast. It really helps. <laughs> I, I so it. don't feed yeah. the trolls. We talk a lot. Like we had Ken M on the podcast. Have you heard of Ken M? Oh my God. Ken, I love Ken M. Holy shit. He's the best. <laughs> yeah. He came on uh, like, I don't know, five or six episodes ago. He's hilarious. He kind of does a little bit what you do. It's kind of like this, um, well, you, you're a little more attacking sort of bad design from just like straight up. He's a little more passive, like gets people to make fun of him or his characters, if you will. You know, we, we we try to talk about like different types of trolls out on the internet, and in a way, you're kind of trolling this bad design. Do you feel like people give you crap? Like, oh, you're just trolling these people and these designers. Do you do you get any flack for that? No, I never get any flack. Actually, it's kind of <laughs> weird. Everyone agrees. It's I mean, kind of you're you're, t- you're attacking the top one percent. You're not going to get any flack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of weird how I don't get any flack, honestly. Like, the only time I've ever gotten, like, mean emails is if I've made an off-color political joke, and then I just, like, laugh at them, because that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're trolling people's dreams. Like, a lot of, you know, Westerners have this goal of one day owning a a McMansion, you know, and and they, they just see themselves and picture themselves in this gaudy, terrible house, and it's a lame dream, and so you're kind of trolling that dream. You're exposing how lame it is, and ultimately... You know, they could have positive ramifications. Like you could be redirecting people's desires to something more wholesome in the process that's of the trolling goal. their dreams. And so, I would say that's a more honorable uh, thing to be doing when you're trolling. <laughs> totally the goal. Yeah, and that's and that's why I think it feels like Ken M because it's not you know you're not trying to like just be a jerk. You're trying to say, look, guys, let's look at the let's look what's good over here. Let's make some better decisions. Let's think about other people when we design and create things. Right? I think it's like some just getting people to think about architecture like critically. Like everyone is an architecture critic already. Right. It's a matter of just like channeling that and like making informed decisions rather than just like I hate that. It's like, but now you can kind of say why. That's always sort of been the goal of the project is to make a better critic out of everyone else. But also I think it's definitely like a generational thing. I mean, I know a lot of my on Facebook, like I see a bunch of people who read and they're like all older. But I feel like that most of the people who like read my blog are probably my age or a little or a little younger or older. And I think it's just like people just like just really just sick and tired of just the sort of wastefulness of it and like the the bitterness of sort of my generation towards like the housing market that's just been completely destroyed and this this sort of false equity that we put in houses. Right. Like that this is the be all end all of the American dream. And I think that that's that's a problem that I that lots of people that lots of people see and are critical of is this sort of is this wastefulness and is this this idea of there's more to like your dreams than a big house. Right. That's why I think yeah. a lot of young people travel and eat out and like have friends instead yeah. of just like hoard <laughs> hoard stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 definitely a marker of of the younger generations. I mean, my I'm not I'm not as young as you. I'm 33, but. Uh, and I have three kids, but my wife and I are are moving our family into an RV and traveling all over the country this summer for eight weeks. And uh, try, like we're basically paring down everything we own. We rent a house because we we like you see that 
um, it's not the end all be all. It's just having having something and filling it with stuff. How do you, so? How do you feel about mansions in general? Like, is there a responsible way to have a giant house? Like, it's pretty well known at this point that I'm like kind of a leftist, so I would say no personally. <laughs> but I think that like to talk to everybody else, I would say that yes, there is a responsible way to have a mansion, which is to use the highest quality materials, use what you can afford, and not just like cheap stuff that makes you look like you have more money than you do. Right. Uh, to to build like sustainably and, and ethically to to try and minimize like trips in the car yeah to to sort of understand the ramifications of, of what you do and like what you do to the landscape and I think that's always been something that architecture itself has been very intimate with is these and especially like our most famous and beloved architects in the US like Franklin right right you know this idea of integrating the landscape and not just dis- necessarily disturbing everything to have the house on the lawn right but sort of like embed the house within the context, whether it's the suburbs or whether it's, yeah. you know, on top of a waterfall or whatever. Right. And the sort of successors to that in architecture right now are like in the Northwest. Cutler Anderson and Olson Kundig are two firms that do very much similar work to the sort of falling water, water idea of just like that, the sustainable house right. nestled in the forest, uh, like with minimal impact. Oh, yeah. And this reminds me of like a philosophical idea of partnering with nature and not holding dominion over nature or or offsetting certain aspects of nature and this is like we we talk about this a lot on our podcast we had um a pretty alarmist radical person on talking uh Lear Keith talking about how um big agriculture is you know this whole thing where you strip the land of all of all of the vegetation and then you plant you know a single annual crop and its roots don't grow very deep you know corn and soy and then you then you strip it again and that causes all this like flooding and um all this bad stuff for the environment where there's all this runoff of all these pesticides into the water and she's talking more about this kind of cyclical partner with nature have a grass-based farm that has deep roots so that the carbon can go into the ground and so that the it can be fertilized naturally and nutrients can be in the soil and this kind of sounds like that in a way of saying, how can we build homes that partner with nature that don't disturb or destroy it? Is that kind of what you're saying? That's part of it, yeah. And I think it's also just having architectural integrity in general. Um, I think a lot of the problem that I have with McMansions is that they use, like, people using their resources to buy materials or to, to, to build big when it's just as a reflection of wealth. It's like kind of using this sort of architectural symbolism, but of things like big columns and like huge entryways and stuff like that, but they can't actually afford to do that. So they build things using the worst materials ever. And because <laughs> right. it's like so cheap, it's yeah. like, if you want to build huge like that, it's actually like a jillion dollars. Right. Like yeah. if you wanted to yeah. use the high quality materials, so my, it's not quite ethics, but reason in architecture is, is to build what you can afford using the best materials. Right. So McMansions are basically, you know, the illusion of wealth. It's the cheap food. Yeah. They don't actually have the wealth. They're just there's just this pressure to say like, well, you know, we can afford an eight hundred thousand dollar house. So instead of instead of spending, you know, all eight hundred thousand dollars on a really nice eighteen hundred square foot house, they build a thirty eight hundred square foot house, and it's just made cheaply, right? And then and then and then it doesn't it doesn't help the market because the value doesn't stay, right? Yeah, I think the value of like the houses is highly dependent on the value of the land. In this right. case, because this is what I've sort of discovered in, with like just looking through real estate listings for a million years, 
Yeah. Is that I think that it just the big houses are going to be worth like a jillion dollars, even if they're built like with the cheapest materials, if the land is worth that much. Right. A house is a very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard. Life used to be so hard. And I fixed up a house in the city that was only 1,800 square foot, um, and it took me about a year and a half. I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to try to maintain a 3,500 square foot house. It's just so much work. And I don't think people realize that everything's breaking in that house all the time, even if it's small. So if you own this thing, it owns you. And I think that, I mean, I would never buy a big house just because I'd be working on it all the time. Do you find... The people don't think about that when they buy big houses. They don't even. They people don't no think idea. about that when they build buildings. Right. That's been like a like. Look at every public housing project that's ever been built. It's not the projects themselves that fail. It's the fact that no one set aside any money to maintain them ever. Right. And yeah. so they just fall apart, and people just like are left like in these horrible situations that they can't get out of. Because a lot of people who live in public housing are elderly people and disabled people. And it's just, like, it's horrible. I mean, it just happens all over cities all over the place. And you see, like, the famous examples, like Cabrini Green or, like, Prudiga, who just get, like, torn down. It's like those were nice places to live when they built them. It wasn't the residents that necessarily ruined them. It's that no one let – they just left them to die, right, the, yeah. the, the projects. It's, like, it's always been that a case with – it's, like, people don't realize how much it costs to maintain a house. Yeah, People don't right. realize how much it costs to maintain their lives. It's like it's like it's not just the upfront cost of buying the damn thing. It's actually putting money into it when the roof starts to go, and that's like twelve thousand dollars. When I exactly when I moved into my rental house, we had like a big rain. It was like fall, and like we were in we were in the house for a month, and then it rained, and then it was leaking through the the, the dining room um, uh, light fixture. And so my landlord came over and paid some roofers to kind of patch up the roof, and then it leaked again. And then he basically had to buy a new roof. It was ten grand, and I was like, "Thank God I don't own this house because <laughs> I don't have ten yeah. grand to drop on it." But those are things you don't think about. You just think, "I can afford." Here, what's the maximum I can afford for for to to own a house, or what's the highest mortgage? And then you just move in with your three percent down, and then you're faced with this uh the reality of of maintenance which people don't consider on heating and cooling the thing and uh you know just where you're going to actually be i mean do you do you have any stats on like how many rooms people go in inside their house like on a daily like a daily average of like how many rooms and places in people's homes do they go i always wondered if that information is available because i mean how are people going to track that without like cameras or something yeah yeah i think i've seen some studies where they they monitor, they have people sign up and monitor like how, what, what spaces they actually use. And it's like, yeah, it's like kitchen, bathroom, bedroom. <laughs> and yeah. then there's like 14 rooms that like are never, oh, yeah. never used. Yeah, the things are designed for like the max ocu- occupancy. Like people design these houses around like having a party with like 20,000 people coming over. Like <laughs> right. how many times in your life does that happen? Right. And you're designing a house for it. So just move them outside for God's sake. They're, de- like, they're designing their dreams. They think they're going to be super popular once they get this house. And they'll suddenly that's have exactly all these. That's exactly right. Yeah. They'll suddenly have all these these friends that they'll invite over all the time. But and that never really happens. I, I was going to ask how much how much of your critique of these McMansions uh, is is architectural only versus kind of a critique of society or our p- priorities as a culture. It's kind of both. I mean, 
architecture is half of it, but I think there's, like, there's, like, you can tell in some of the jokes, it's just, like, extremely sort of nihilistic. Um, like, there are jokes th- that, like, I'm, I make a lot of jokes about, like, divorce and, <laughs> and and things like that that are very much, like, bitterness. Right. Kids kids my age, right, we grew up in the in the time of, like, the recession. Right. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I was, like, an adolescent during the recession, and so, like... I mean, I just remember all of the fallout, and I was like, "But why were these people so risky with pe- other people's houses and other people's money?" And it's like yeah. it's not their fault or something. No one got punished. Right? There's this reinforced idea constantly that like no one has to pay for being wrong. Yeah. Unless right. they're poor. Right. Then they pay. Yeah, and exactly. the system yeah. of just getting into a home and being in a home. You know, I have a lot of friends who I grew up in Sacramento, and a lot of my friends work in San Francisco, and uh, they say that it's just so unsustainable now. It's so overinflated now. Oh, that's insane. Yeah. San Francisco is just it's just like the whole thing is just need to, needs to be gutted honestly. Like the the housing system there is just they just need to introduce legislation and they won't do it. Yeah. Like like my friend I have friends renting a 900 square foot apartment, single single little flat and it's like 2800 a month. Yeah. And yeah. uh it's uh it's insane. I I, I you know, and Apple just designed this big, huge, like what five billion dollar complex, and they're they're ordering three thousand trees to be put in. Have you seen that? No. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, Apple's building their headquarters, and they uh, they spent like five billion dollars to build this huge building, these offices, and uh, they're gonna they're gonna basically surround it like trees, like uh, like it's like in Star Wars, and the Ewoks are gonna come out of the trees and build <laughs> Apple iPhones and such. But it's. <laughs> They were just saying how because they bought so many trees to put into this this facility that the cost of trees in California is now like quadrupled and it's creating this big problem. <laughs> it just seems like no matter what you do, you're going to create a problem though on a massive scale. Yeah, there's systemic. Here's, evil here's for Apple sure. tr- trying to get more trees and be more like aesthetically pleasing and more environmentally friendly, and yet they're screwing the tree service. I don't know. It just seems like there's always a downside. Yeah, humans just suck, right? <laughs> oh, that's. That's what it comes down that's to. That's the part that that's the best part of the humor is just making fun of humanity. Well, yeah. Kate, Kate uh how, so I guess I'm technically a millennial. I, I don't think Nate is. He's a couple years older than me. I'm at the top end of it. But there seems to be um like you said, you know, growing up and and experiencing a recession and maybe some hardship with, you know, parents and whatnot. Um I was kind of a little bit on the, on the back side of that. I was already out and I didn't own a home and I didn't get burned or anything. But um, that perspective of, of going, okay, we need to, we need to, uh, reassign or reappropriate our values here to something different. And there seems to be a big movement for more efficient, tiny home type lifestyle, which seems to come out of this younger generation. People going, I'm going to travel. I'm going to be in an RV or a camper, or I'm going to get a tiny home and put it on a, a lot somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and just live efficiently. Do you think that is a response to the recession, or is this? I, I'm I'm assuming it's a number of things, but I just love to hear your opinion on that. I mean, you're talking about fa- like fads that are occurring within a certain economic sphere right. or a certain economic class. Like young people, people who like young people who want to live in tiny houses and stuff. They're not people like me. They're people who are much wealthier than I am. <laughs> yeah. Like, to just, like, do that kind of thing, and, like, it's, like, you're basically, like, affording to not have responsibilities. Yeah. So it, it is it is a privilege, in a way, to, to own a tiny home now. It's not just the trailer park people. It's a privilege to, like, 
to just like go travel and do whatever you want and stuff like that. It's like I'm a free spirit or whatever. It's like you're you're there's no such thing as a free spirit in a capitalist society. Like where's your freaking job or your parents are paying for everything? Yeah. Like it's like yeah, I get to go on vacation every once in a while and it's a lot of fun, right? But like I'm not like living that free spirit life where I'm just like I'm going out everywhere. I'm like I go out and walk everywhere because I don't have a car. So like I get to go on small vacations every day and just like look at things and right. be a part of the world, right? So I think yeah. that it's like, yeah, I think ultimately, like, it's like, if I was from another generation, would I be as experience driven? I don't know. Hmm. But I also think that that's just who I am personally. I think that the, the, the tiny house thing is like just a trend towards like, I mean, these, this was the generation, my generation was like, maybe the second generation that like, you're a little kid and they tell you like, don't let the water run and like recycle and stuff. And right. so like, it's kind of like an, uh, it's a generation of like, ecological stewards and stewardesses. Mm-hmm. That's like a huge part of it. It's like this is also the generation that was that was told that was like coming into to school right after the big tobacco lawsuits, and so like we got the no smoking thing like in kindergarten. Right. Yeah. It's these are just generational changes that are. It's like part PSA, part experience, part ideology right. and experience, and like just seeing like the the stupid crap that that people have done with money and and like really the recession I think has jaded a lot of people. Even I was like I don't know twelve or thirteen when it happened. Like, I just remember, like, just the news and everyone is just, like, miserable and reading about, like, that's just when I started reading about mortgages and, like, what, what, trying to understand what happened. I spent, like, so many years trying to understand how people could let this happen. Because that's what it was, is they just let it happen because, because it was out of greed. It's the same thing with, like, Donald Trump. It's just people refusing to give up, like, this lifestyle that's just become unsustainable. Right, yeah. We don't live in the in a in a life in an economy where you can like work your job at like Ford screwing the same in same screw in for like twenty five years with health insurance anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. Like we, this we got is like the for that now. <laughs> we're totally. I mean, it's just well, the like the service economy is totally disrupted by things like the, those startup companies like Uber and Lyft, where you see Uber and Lyft drivers just like sleeping in their car and stuff like that. It's like it's like this. It's like there's this culture amongst young people that. That like you just never stop and you never stop going or doing or oh, or yeah. it's just like this is the the sort of caffeine coffee thing. We talked about that in our in just our last podcast. Uh, we called we called it workaholism, but it was this idea of uh, we we read an article called the gig economy and and yeah how it's, exactly yeah and how it's all about basically working yourself to death and that's been celebrated. And there was this one story of a, of a lady who was pregnant and she was in labor and she stopped to pick up. She was a Lyft driver, and she stopped to pick up a passenger on the way to the hospital. And Lyft <laughs> sent out like marketing, like oh. praising her for like her work ethic. Oh. And we're like, is that really healthy? Like, she she made eleven dollars and like put her baby at risk. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. probably not um, <clears throat> not something we should celebrate. But it seems like you're, you're absolutely right. The economy, the service economy, especially definitely celebrates just working super, super hard and not really stopping to smell the roses. And I think that that's the problem, though, is that, like, this is why there's so much, like, thirst for travel and stuff like that is because, like, like I think that this is, like, the generation that realizes that it's, like, there's more to life than just having a job and getting yours. Yeah, right. And whether it's the big house in the suburbs or, I mean, there's nothing necessarily even wrong with suburbs. There are plenty of good suburbs in this world. And there are right. plenty yeah. of good efforts to, to sort of retrofit the suburbs and make them like contemporary or whatever it's it's like the suburbs like you know the exurbs are definitely just a waste of space but the suburbs like you know however many rings of suburbs there are there's there's room for integration and 
development, and those are the places that are sort of coming alive now. It's it's because like the cities are are unaffordable to live in because the same pe- it's the same people who are ruining everything again. It's like oh, it's cool <laughs> to live in the city, and so they have a lot of money, so they move to the city and just push the price of living up so much. Right. You know, this kind of reminds me. I'm trying to think of like you know when the light bulb kind of went on for me, and I think once the light bulb goes on in your because what you're describing it, it's not just housing; it's like everything that humans do, and the way we sort of I don't know kind of cannibalize ourselves. When the light bulb goes on, you start to see these things. You can't unsee it. You can't stop seeing it. I remember, I think, it, you know, Matt and I play music, and, and we did for, for a living at one point. And um, I was in the U.K., and I was reading this Banksy book. And, you know, I, I, it was like years ago before Banksy was a thing. Before Exit Through the Gift Shop. Yeah, way before that. This was like 2007 or something, and, um, you know, before everyone knew who Banksy was. But, but you know, he kind of touches on a lot of these themes in his pieces, you know, trying to like the world is this awesome canvas that can be art. Anything right. can be art. Anything can be beautiful and, and painted pro- on. and provocative and trolling. Yeah. Trolling mainstream society. Yeah. And so he makes these great pieces that are totally just amazing. And they but they showcase how beautiful just a random street corner could be or something cool could when you come around a corner instead of this. Just advertisement after advertisement after crappy building after government building after <laughs> advertisement. You know, he's trying to say, like, F you to that whole thing. And I, and I think that's when I started to see the world in a different place, thanks to Banksy. <laughs> Kate Wagner's like the new Banksy right now. Yeah. <laughs> Was there anything like Banksy that inspired you to be like, just like the light bulb came on? You're like, man, the world's great. The world's beautiful. We just, we just don't see it or we don't design it that way. I've always been like a kid who was like, the world is beautiful. Um, when I yeah. was, I've, I don't know, like I have high functioning autism. So I, or like what Asperger's syndrome used to be called, uh, right. or is called now. It's not Asperger's anymore. Uh, I went to a lot of therapy and now I'm like a normal person, but. The, as normal as someone who writes about houses for a living can be. Um, but when I was a kid, like, I had, like, a series of, like, really deep and, and crazed fascinations with things. Like, it was, if it was, it was, like, bugs when I was, like, like really little, and then it was plants. And I still, I still love plants. I'm, like, an amateur botanist. I love plants. It's awesome. You know, and then it was birds, and then it was weather. Um, I wanted to be a meteorologist for, like, a good, like, five years of my life. And this is, like, my 12th year as a, as a Skywarn storm spotter for the National Weather Service. Awesome. And then buildings, always. I always, I mean, when I was a kid, I saw, like, the McMansions, right? And, and I saw the, you know, all the tract houses and stuff. But I still love them because they were all different from one another. And I like the small variations and changes amongst, like, a common theme. I went to music school. So did I. <laughs> yeah, I... Ex music school people, right? <laughs> I I was uh, I started playing the violin at four and was um, I was told I was bad at math and shouldn't go to architecture school, and so I was like, well, I have to do something else now. And so I I became I started writing music in high school because I had a crush on a guy who wrote music, and then I ended up going to school for composition, 
And while I was there, I started being a recording engineer. And that's and I, when I was like a recording engineer, I started getting into to concert halls. And now I study acoustics at Johns Hopkins, and I'm writing my thesis about like a history of 20th century concert halls. So it's all sort of tied together and works out fine. Yeah, architecture but, is huge with acoustics, obviously, with baffling those waves, etc. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really that's a really crazy story. You have a varied kind of experience of just jumping through different things, but it seems like it all ties together with this McMansion hell. You know, like you're you're concerned about architecture. Um, you're concerned about a number of different things: beauty, for one, efficiency. Um, you know, obviously that that's a concern with with a concert hall, right? Like, can this efficiency? Can everybody in this seat, uh, in, in a different seat, hear the same thing or something yeah. similar? So that's awesome. That's really cool. I had no idea that that you were into that stuff. Yeah, that's. I'm like getting a master's of arts in acoustics, and then I'm planning on trying to go get a PhD in architectural history. Not. I I really just want to have access to resources more, so I can just do more, um, and do more research and and have sort of that that support. Uh, I'm also just trying to yeah. move further north. Where do you live right now? I'm in Baltimore. I'm. Is Johns Hopkins, but uh, oh right, right. Yeah, the I love Baltimore. Uh, I think Baltimore is a great city, actually, and I think it's like if you're really young, like I am, I'm like 23. If you're really young, it's a great city to live in because it's not really that expensive to live in Baltimore, and there's right. tons of things to do, and there's a bunch of weird people, yeah. and it's it's like you know, it's not the nicest city, right? It's not the city, you know, council and whatever. They're all corrupt, and the mayor's all corrupt, and like everything sure. is. It's it's like the politics of Baltimore are just bad, and they've been bad since the beginning of time. They're so bad that they, that we have the wire. Um, <laughs> that the wire is true. But the the actual living in the city is is nice. Uh, right. It's it's a good city to have like a first city ex- sort of experience. Um, I think that like it's like you don't have to deal with like the sort of ideology that comes with cities like New York or L.A. and the sort of daunting size yeah. of them. Um, you don't have to deal with like housing crisis and stuff like that because there's still good places to live. That's cool. We'll be in Baltimore. My band will be in Baltimore on May 11th at oh, Auto Bar. Come oh, hang. nice! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, def- I'll definitely, I'll definitely come hang. <laughs> that would uh, be awesome. I play music sometimes still, but it's uh, I play music just kind of like what it was always meant to be for me, which was like a hobby or something that I like. I miss playing in the orchestra, though. Honestly, I really miss that. That's like the one thing that I miss from music school is playing in the orchestra. Being a piece in a big, in a, in a big sea of instruments is really fun. It is. Yeah. And, but going back to your question about just like, I've, I've just like never, I have this really cynical view of the world. It's not even a cynical view. It's just a really honest one. Um, it's just like, it's like to be mindful of like the struggles of other people who are different than you is important in par- is part of being a human being to try right. to like understand how things work and how, and like what things are like to know like all the plants where you live and stuff like that is is just like adding another dimension of of like love for the world. Yeah. To know right. what the cl- like how to name all the clouds and what they mean and what it, like what they say about what the weather is going to be like is just adding another layer of like of understanding to the world again. And then like with architecture, it's like most people just go by buildings every day; they don't even think about it. But like once you open that door, like so much of the world becomes more interesting. Right, you and, get to yeah, see yeah. and experience in a visceral way everything that you see. The more you understand, yeah. the more you experience. I like that podcast, ninety nine percent invisible. You listen to that one? Yeah, I write for them. Actually, they have oh, articles do? now, and I, I write for them. I was on that podcast last year, and uh, okay. yeah. So Roman Mar- Mars is kind of a boss of mine. He's like, uh, it's kind of funny. 
But anyways, yeah, I love I love I love what they do, and I love that they're able to describe such visual things with with words. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I was like, here I am earlier in the podcast saying you know it'd be hard to do it, but it's like yeah, I listen to ninety nine percent visual all the time. But they do things that are you know design and and stories, so it's 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 all over the map in terms of design. But yeah, that's cool. I th- you know what I might have heard you on there. It's probably what landed me on your page because I thought I had heard it before. So here we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so weird. There's like suddenly like a, a bunch of interests. Like like there was a time where I wasn't having like any interviews for a while and I was just like making my study blog thing, doing my thing or whatever. And then like this week I've had like three different interviews for like three different like I had a, another podcast which is like a modernist house podcast and then yeah. and then like Johns Hopkins magazine and I'm just like wait, 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 wait. Why are all these people just like really into me right now? What did I do? <laughs> I like yeah. what what did I say and what did something I do? Got shared something got shared well t- I, I want to talk about your process a little bit how do you pick <clears throat> the homes that you um, critique uh, for lack of a better word like do you walk around do you do you see them in person or do you just find them on the internet they're all on the internet it's all on um, on like Zillow and Redfin like at real estate aggregates I, I serve by a certain criteria uh, I go usually from houses built from 1980 to like 2015. Usually, ah, but yeah. I try to stop at 2010, but like 2015 occasionally. Not that there's anything wrong with new houses, it's just that they generally don't have stuff in them in real estate listings, and right, so like it yeah. makes it harder to critique them. The only like really good empty house critique that I ever did was I feel like like one of the really early ones, which was McLean, Virginia, which I think is hilarious. It's like one of the only posts I've ever written where I'm like, actually, that's funny. <laughs> like I'll read through some of them, and I'm like, oh, that's a, that that was a good jab, and I was I'll read through some of them, like, man, that was really like a risky joke to make or I'll, I'll read through some of them. And I'm like, this is just like bad. We all do it. We all do it. We're all our worst <laughs> critics, right? You mentioned making risky jokes that some people give you a little bit of backlash for, uh, you know, just speaking as someone from your generation that se- tends to be a little bit more sensitive to kind of PC um, ideas. Do you just not care if people take it the wrong way? You just kind of, I'm just going to say what I think and who cares? I think that's like people, um, Confuse political correctness with politeness. Right. It's, like, okay to make jokes about divorce, and it's okay to make jokes about death and stuff like that, but it's totally not okay to make, like, racial slurs or... Sure. Or anything like that. Uh, But mostly, I'm mostly making fun of white people, honestly, and I'm making fun (laughs) of... I'm making fun of rich white people. Like, we can all make fun of rich white people. Everybody can rally around that, besides a few rich white people. Yeah, it's like, they're the people in power, and so, like... You know, it's not like you're making fun of people who are who are less powerful than you. Right, right. Which would be the mean kind of trolling, which would be like that's what, you know, when we were talking to Ken M, you know, he 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 kind of has an honor code. Like he doesn't he makes fun of himself and he doesn't put people down. He's always the first. Yeah, he's always the first comment. He'll never be like a comment after somebody. Yeah, he'll else's never comment. comment on someone else's comment. He'll just put something stupid out there and then they'll bite. God, he's so hilarious. It's reverse trolling. He's so funny. I like, I think he's a genius, honestly. Because I, I, he knows exactly what to say that, like, it's just dumb enough that you think it's possible that someone actually said <laughs> yeah. that. And then just, like, yeah. watching, like, the, the results is, is just hilarious. It's, like, a great, like, I'm not clever enough to, to, to be able to put within a context the things that he says. And you look at things, like, like, I've, like on Reddit, like, the old people Facebook, and, and it's just, like, it's really not that different from Ken. <laughs> Internet's great in that way. You can, you can, you can have a, McMansion blog, and you can make fun of people on Yahoo, and you can g- gain this popularity and fame. It's kind of fun. 
you know, to think back on it all. I never really thought about being famous. I thought I was going to try and be a famous composer at some point, and then I realized I hated it. I hated that idea because, like, who, there's no even, like, the only, like, living famous composer is, like, Philip Glass. It's always the movie guys. But I think that, like, it's like that that world is, it doesn't, there are famous composers in other countries and they're famous within their countries. Like, that world doesn't work in America, really. Right. Like the same. Yeah. The patronage for the arts is just like. Screwed. Oh, you just rem- you just reminded me that I bought a masterclass for Han- Hans Zimmer's masterclass, and I never even watched it. So thanks for reminding me. <laughs> there you go. Did he tell you how to use like three hundred million dollars worth of synthesizers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is how it works. Yeah, I- and it's like oh, all you need is three hundred million dollars yeah. worth of stuff. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. You know what you bring up about you know different countries and composers and liking different stuff. That's kind of reminds me of of traveling, you know, playing music. When we were traveling, like when we went over to the UK and we went over to the Europe, you, I don't know, you're standing in buildings that are hundreds of years old. And um, some of them are from like, you know, 1400. And you're like, wow, this building has been here this entire time. Since Someone when, since when scientists said the earth was flat, which I think some are yeah. doing now, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> they're not scientists, though. <laughs> well, so maybe even some people with PhDs, but they're not scientists. They're just, I hope they're not. just educated. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, is like, I just, I just felt ashamed to be an American and I didn't tell anybody. I was just walking around going, man, America just, we just don't get yeah. it. Like we just, we have nothing that's that old. We have buildings that are, you know, falling sure. down five years after we build them. And, uh, there's, there's no time to, to take it in and take the beauty and see what's around and, and build with stone and all kinds of, I don't know. Obviously we can't deny the technological advances of the, the of post enlightenment thought and rationalism and sure, science sure. and that you know that we've we've basically been able to do bad things but also a lot of good things and but we've lost something and I think you know Nate and I talk about it a lot on this podcast um, and and you're kind of referring to it I think when you're talking about noticing things and understanding things and being present and being aware of things um, we've lost that sense of maybe even Middle Eastern or Eastern mysticism, which is like, be present, be aware. Don't be constantly striving for these things in the future and understand what your desires are. Do you really need that big house? Do you really need that, that many zeros in your bank account? And, and kind of stop, pause, and observe your thoughts and behaviors, which I think the West, we've kind of done away with because it's just, it's all pragmatism. It's all what works, it works, it, func- it grows, it's successful, capitalism works let's just do more let's just plug in but even more it's like the mcmansion is just to resell it's not even to hmm. live in so you design this house it, it doesn't even serve its purpose right. right because you can't really live in it because like you know i've gone through a lot of your your posts on your on your blog and it just looks like man these houses are so unuseful to the point where it's like you park your car on one side of the house and then you have to walk all the way to the other side <laughs> of the house to get to the door. You would hate it. You would sell yeah. it immediately. And I just, I think that's the difference. I think that that's true. I think that like uh, there's a there's a huge like lot right of uh, there's a lot of the housing stock from like 1990 
to like 2007, right? That was actually half of it was actually just designed for resale because people were just flipping houses like it was yesterday. People were building speculatively all the time. Like this, this is a fact of life. This is mm-hmm. a fact that's true. It's more than just like the resale value, though. It's also just like the idea of it's trying to manifest physically this sort of idea of how we see ourselves. Like we see ourselves as like social people. So we build a house for socializing. And when you realize that like you live in the middle of nowhere, no right. one's going to drive 50 minutes to go to your dinner yeah. party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're projecting your ideal self and your ideal identity into your home, but it's not the reality. And it's so true. You know, when you're designing your home and you're, and you're thinking about what you're purchasing, you're, you're always envisioning people seeing whatever it is. Some post somewhere I read, it was like, you know, since when were homes designed to be looked at instead of designed to be lived in? And there is this this line of you want it to look good, but you also want to live in the thing. And the inside of the home, you know, has kind of taken a back seat to the outside of the house. You know what I mean? Like it just, it looks great, but then, you know, what's it like inside? What's it like in the home? The, the things you're actually going to use every day. Do you feel like McMansions just sacrifice everything on the inside for the outside? I don't think so. I think that they sacrifice everything on the outside for the inside. The houses are designed from the inside out. They're designed to have the bonus mm. room and the cathedral ceilings and the bathroom on the second floor. So the roof line looks like it's like stupid and huge and massive and, and, you know, sort of out of control. And it's like the house is designed around having all the interior features. It's around having like the bay window in the bathtub with the in the bathroom with the garden tub. It's it's designed that way. So now you have to have a stupid bay window on the back of your house. It's like it's like it's designed hmm. to 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 reinforce these interior tropes that because of their execution have become exterior tropes. Yeah. You have to also understand like you know this right. that like HGTV doesn't have any shows about architecture. They have shows about interiors out the ass though. Yeah. Like, it's like, we fetishize the interiors of our house as something that's supposed to be, it's like, it's a fashion, and but it's always been a fashion. Like, it's not the fashion, it's not the, the sort of temporariness of, or like the ephemeral nature of, of interior design, which is always, which is like any fashion is cyclical. It's more the, the interior architecture is the problem. It's not necessarily what color you paint the walls or what couches you buy. It's it's the it's the ceiling height as a as a symbol for yeah. wealth. It's it's the garden tub, which I mean, my parents have a garden tub in their bathroom, and like I think I can count on like two of my hands, like it like the huh. fifteen eighteen years I lived in that house, like how many times the garden tub. Yeah, was have you seen the minimalism documentary on Netflix? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of uh, another big movement going on now, and we did an episode on it, but it kind of reminds me of that as like, yeah. you know, if you own this thing. And you don't use it, well, then, then that thing owns you. It, but if you use the thing, then you own the thing, and it's it has some use in your life. So or if it's it adds, like va- it's not at- even just usefulness. It does it add value when you look at it. Does it add value? And if it doesn't, then it goes. It's like I can understand this that sort of minimalism, and I think that it's totally efficient, and I could totally live that way. But at the same time, my research and what I do with my life is just a lot of it involves collecting things. Like I. You know, I came with, like, a bookshelf, and I had, like, I had just bought a new bookshelf, and I had it, like, maybe three of the five shelves, like, really full. And then within, like, three months of living, I had, or, or, that's not even true. I started the blog, and then I started buying books out the ass because I needed them suddenly. And, hmm. and like, books checked out from the library. I also have a huge record collection that I really just need to do something about that is just, like, excessive. Um <laughs> 
because I was like a recording. But those things engineer. add value to your life, you know. They yeah, I mean the they books do. And the music. I have so, like a whole I mean, bookshelf of, of classical music books that I can't. I'd never even look at anymore. And I'm like, why do I have these? But the thought of giving them up makes me want to cry. Hmm. Um, so it's like I mean, for me, also design. I love design. First of all, like if I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't love design, and I love all design. I love industrial design. I love interior design. I love product design. I love graphic design. Uh, user interface design, any design that is good design, I can appreciate at this point. Especially hmm. when you're like me and look like look at so much shit forever. <laughs> but so one of the one of the the key principles of design, though, is is often like you know less is more, like taking stuff away. Like sometimes it's too busy, and sometimes the best designs are the, the cleanest and the simplest. And so there is this minimalism. I mean, a good eye, I would say. Are you saying that an Affliction t-shirt is not (laughs) the best design? Oh, my God. Those ones are the worst. Don't talk shit about Ed Hardy. Or just, just, or even the tattoos on the people that wear the shirts. It's just like, (laughs) good gosh. Like, that is the terrible. Yeah, I'm definitely a minimalist with tattoos. I don't have any. Um, (laughs) But I think that, like, I'm, like, probably the only, like, like, blonde woman who's, like, been to art school. In the whole world that doesn't have a tattoo. I'm pretty sure. I'm just calling that now. I'm the only band guy who did Warp Tour in 2006 and 2008 with no tattoos. No, I was there and I didn't have any. You didn't have any tattoos, Dave? No, I was there with you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sometimes just design is just aesthetics, though. It's like what you like to look at. Like for me, I mean, I don't necessarily love minimalism. I think that minimalism can be extremely drab. And ex- like I, I, I hate hmm. white walls with a passion. I really do. I don't care how nice the wood floor is. I hate white walls. It can walls. kind of feel depressing a little bit. It can. It feels like you're just trapped in the space that needs to be spotless all the time. That you have to like change your life for the space rather than change the space to fit your life. Yeah. It's a little Soviet Russia. Well, I think, I think, I think minimalism, <laughs> you know, kind of goes beyond that. Once you really get into it, there's like, you know, it, it's, it, it's less about stuff and it's more about asking good questions. I think mindfulness is more important than minimalism. I think that right. being being, aware. being mindful yeah. about everything, whether it's whether it's like all the stuff I said about the clouds and the in the plants or whatever, but like just being mindful of, of like like your place in space in a room. And I I told hmm. I was telling a colleague at drinks last night. I said like there's a reason why I love concert hall so much, and there's a reason why I love architectural acoustics. And don't think that the answer is like making walls that work like speakers, like the Meyer sound kind of stuff. And it's like. First of all, that technology is right. from the '90s and it's old. And if if your walls break, then you're just screwed. Right. Um, I yeah. I mean that's like the reason why it's not popular is because God forbid your concert hall break. But the thing about experiencing music in a concert hall, it's one of the only experiences that we have in our lives nowadays where it is a temporal event that comes and goes in a specific place. Hmm. You are for an hour. Your attention is on this one thing. Maybe your your mind can wander, of course. Like, I mean, I hear Beethoven 7, I'm like, oh, I'm thinking of the brook and the stream and how much I really hate that, that viola part in this measure. You know, your mind can wander, but you're in a space. You are experiencing space yeah. and you are experiencing... It's not a recording. You can't play it over again. You All you're left with is that memory. Is this kind of like the Snapchat phenomena? Like, that's the desire? That, that nothing is permanent and therefore I want to experience something in the temporary moment that disappears and somehow that makes me feel present in my body like as so, i mean a lot of this is eastern philosophy and a lot of this is like right. experimentalism in the 60s and 70s was huge in this and like the temporal phenomenon as being just as valid mm-hmm. as 
as like this thing that we can relive over and over again. I think, and I've also always been an improviser and I've always loved the idea of improvisation because it's like different every time you can have like tropes right. or themes or whatever, but like it, it's, it's whatever happens is happening in a very fixed moment of time that will never happen again. Yeah. And that's how our whole lives are is they're just fixed moments of time that will never happen right. again. And so, so you're saying awareness of that is what more mindfulness of that is what adds value to your life. Not necessarily saying I need to um, adhere to this ideology yeah. to be happy. It's just being aware that this present moment is passing. And so how can you best experience it? I think that it's like being aware of living your life. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, like recently, I, I was like, I have to get off my phone. Um, I've always had different, like, I, I didn't get like a smartphone until I was a senior in high school. Um, and so like, I didn't get like the smartphone etiquette that like other people sort of got to grow up with. And so like, I just was like always on the phone all the time. And now that I like internet famous, I had to be on the phone a lot more, like actually had to rather than just like sticking around or whatever. Yeah, Cause now right. I'm just like, I have like all these people I need to interact with and like, I have all these ideas and all these things or whatever. The sort of interesting idea is, is like, it's like, I just realized, like, I was, like, sitting outside and there was all this dynamic cityscape going by and, like, people and, and cars and animals and whatever. And I was just missing it by just, like, being on my phone, like, freaking tweeting or whatever. And you're just like, yeah. you're like, I mean, I love Twitter, don't get me wrong. But, like, there's actually, I, Twitter has its moments, like, you're sitting at a table and you're, like, waiting for your food and you're, like, don't want anyone to talk to you. And so you just are on your phone. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I get it. We spend too much of our lives inside. And that's the thing about the suburbs is that, like, it totally robs you of being outside. Like, you're in the car, and then you're inside, and then you're in the car, and then you're inside. Once you're, like, past the age of, like, 10, you don't have any reason to go outside anymore. And I think that that's, like, a huge human travesty. Right. And so much of the time being spent in the car is, like, the most horrifying thing to me. It's like I get in the car for, like, an hour, and then it's like how many people have wasted years of their lives in their car. And I think about, like, my childhood, and I'm like, I grew up in the suburbs of like a small town and and I remember like 15 minutes to go to school 15 minutes in the car to get a gallon of milk 15 minutes of in the car to go see my friends this reminds me of a poet I like his name's Wendell Berry and you know he he kind of has this manifesto that he writes about how kind of like being punk rock against the system and like one of the last lines he says is like plant sequoias it's such a powerful little line because it's like you're planting this tree that's going to take 3 lifetimes to grow you're never gonna see it. You know what I mean? Why right. would anyone plan a sequoia? But think about think about think about the future yeah. generations. Think about other people down the road. And it's just a beautiful line and it makes me think about mindfulness and what this whole podcast is about. Um, to me, is that mindfulness of kind of coming out of yourself and seeing the world and not being a troll when you build your home and everyone has to look at your ugly home <laughs> across the street, you know. And there's so many photos you have on your side that are great of just just this like you know, houses that make yeah. sense, and then this just ugly house in the middle of it. And that guy's the troll. Right. He's the troll in your neighborhood. He's just like, he's 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 only thinking about himself. And um, and I think that's what we try to talk about on this podcast is trying to consider others and consider the world. Well, also, I'm and I'm really gr- glad that the that it went to to the whole f- phone thing. And instead of just reacting to the world like, oh, I got a notification, someone tweeted me or whatever, yeah, I should go read it. Yeah. That's a reaction kind of posture. Um, interacting physically with our physical spaces in front of us, you know, and, and making that a priority over just um, being forever tied to this false world of, of the internet and social media. So I, I, this is stuff we talk about a lot 
Kate, and we're so glad that you brought it up because I think it just reinforces a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that we're yeah. convicted about too on this podcast. You know, I, the other day I wrote on Facebook, and we could wrap up after this, but I said, you know, I'm so glad I went to college when we just had flip phones. You know what I mean? That's how old I am. Is you know, when I was in college, there was no smartphones. I didn't come out till years after. You know, I was at this wedding talking to all my roommates, and it's amazing. You know, hearing all these stories of all this stuff we did when we got bored. I think that's something that this your generation has a harder time knowing what to do with is that boredom. We came up with so many stupid things to do, and it's just sad because here we are. You know, almost two decades later, talking about college. And we have all these great stories of all the stupid junk we did at nights when we had we were bored. And if we would have had phones and we would have been more plugged into the the grid, I think a lot less of that spontaneity would have you know occurred. And that's sad to me that your generation just won't experience that spontaneity. I think as much you know you still can, but it's just a bummer. But I also I think I think Kate, you're you're inspiring. Uh, against that or out or pushing you know kind of leading a charge away from that that wastefulness of time and space and uh so i think in in some way yes your generation probably struggles a little bit more with this constant distraction but um but i'm really you know i'm really excited to see you kind of be aware more aware than even our generation is of it because you live in the middle of it (laughs) i think that yeah and I think that like the greatest thing that you could do is like, like sit like go to, is go to the concert hall because like you can't sit and be in your phone on the concert hall without everybody literally everybody in the whole world hating you right that moment. <laughs> like I was on my phone in intermission texting my friend to tell him that when I would be getting on the train I still got looks and it was intermission. Yeah, and you were like, yeah, <laughs> thank you, keep me accountable. <laughs> and you're yeah. just like. But, like, it's, like, you can't, like, your phone has to be on silent because if it's not, it just, like, reverberates everywhere and everyone's, like, who the fuck did that? Like, <laughs> who's the idiot whose phone went it. off They're in the militant. concert? It's, like, it's milit- I'm militant about it. I see someone with their phone out. I'll just, like, <laughs> I'll roll up my program and, like, smack them. Yeah. If we could just do that in restaurants now, we'd be better off. No, God, please don't make me have to talk to my Tinder date. <laughs> you actually have to look up. No. All right. Ew. Well, I think... <laughs> I think I think we've uh, expended enough energy and, and taken enough of your time today, so we'll probably wrap up. But uh, for those for those who don't know about McMansion Hell, do you have any places you want to point them to online? Uh, yeah, McMansionHell.com. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, well, also I write articles for Curbed and Ninety Nine Percent Invisible and Atlas Obscura. If you want to read about things like acoustics in the home, like the history of the of the home stereo and in like the design of the stereo, or hmm. like how why bathrooms are huge now, like I wrote about all that stuff. So very fun. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. That's good times. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, thanks for your time, Kate. We really appreciate you having uh, having you on here and having you share a lot of your insights. It's been uh, it's been informative, so we appreciate you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. No problem. All right. Take care. Yeah. It's every